Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's a consistency of policy that, that Iran has had, and a very pragmatic, very rational, very ruthless policy that Iran has had throughout the region of developing, funding, directing, um, and deploying these proxies. And I think when we think about Hezbollah now, this is this plausible deniability that Iran has through its proxies is is incredible because it gives them ability to strike at its adversaries in the region. But there is also a vulnerability there because they also, just as they can strike people in the region, they can also be struck in the region. And one of the the fears that people talked about um, in the context of the war at the moment in Gaza is that should Iran overreach, there is a danger that it's it's sort of key tool of regional, you know, policy might be at risk of blowback from its own actions. Hello and welcome to this edition of Behind the Lines with me, Arthur Snell. A country that's at the heart of the current crisis rocking the Middle East is Iran, but it's one that we don't talk about enough. We talk a lot about its proxies, about its adversaries, about the way that it appears to be a puppet master in the Middle East. But what about Iran itself? Well, to get to the bottom of those questions, it was a great pleasure for me to speak to somebody who has been both an academic, a historian, and also a practitioner working on Iran policy in the UK Foreign Office. And before we go to that interview, I just want to remind you that this podcast exists thanks to its listeners. So if you enjoy it, please give, give us a positive review, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes, and share it with your friends. My name is Charlie Gamble. I'm a former, as yourself, former Foreign Office official um, who's worked on Iran uh, since 2008. And I had jobs in the UK Foreign Office advising government on Iran policy, specifically around Iran's role in the region and the nuclear issue. Um, and I've spent time in Iran and Afghanistan. And I'm the author of a book called The Pearl of Khorasan, which is on the history of Herat, the city in the west of Afghanistan that used to form the part of the eastern edge of Iran's Khorasan province. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you, Charlie. Um, we're talking today at a time when there is immense focus on the Middle East region, 
And obviously that is largely being driven by the tragic events in Israel-Palestine and perhaps in more recent weeks by the growing security crisis in the Red Sea. But behind so many of these events is a fabulously important country, Iran, and yet there isn't much discussion of Iran in all these events. So it's, it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you. And I, I wanted to start with a very big question, which is what is it that Iran wants? And we could try to answer that on lots of levels. But specifically, perhaps we could start with the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict and, and in its current emanation in Gaza. What is it that Iran wants in that conflict? So, Arthur, yeah, thank you. Um, I think that starting starting on this idea of what does Iran want, I, I think when we look at Iran globally and we look at Iran in the region, there is a temptation to see Iran purely through the prism of its relationship with Israel and its relationship with America. So this sort of long-running proxy war that it's had with the US across the Middle East and this long-running covert war that it's had with Israel within Iran and outside Iran. Um, but I think that the, the, whilst they represent a, a portion of the truth of the matter, I think the real truth of the matter when it comes to Iran is to be found in its history from 1979 onwards and then its history before that. And, and Iran sees itself as a regional hegemon. Um, and Iran was deeply, deeply scarred by a number of events throughout the course of its history from, I suppose, the 20th century onwards. And one of the big challenges that Iran has always faced and it sees itself continuing to face is foreign interference into domestic affairs and foreign interference into what's going on in the region. Um, and nowhere more was this more scarring to the Iranian foreign policy psyche than the uh, war with Iraq from 1980 onwards. Yeah. Uh, the war that sort of encompassed the 1980s and, and that war pitted effectively the entirety of the globe against Iran. And you had these sort of extraordinary macabre situations where you had Germany that was selling gas lethal gas to the Iraqis and selling gas masks to the Iranians. In fact, one of the few nations from which Iran could buy um, weapons was actually Israel. And, and this war coming so quickly after the um, Islamic Revolution of 1979 absolutely solidified within Iranian decision makers' minds the necessity of being able to stand on your own two feet in the region and to have a foreign policy that neutralized threats from your neighbors, principally Iraq. So I think when we look at uh, Iran's role in, in the region, um, we need to understand that Iran is principally concerned with domestic security, with, with, with sort of securing its borders and securing itself internally. It's also um, incredibly concerned with prolonging the life of the Nizam, the, the, the regime. And I think that if you see Iran externally standing up for Palestinian rights and for this sort of dialogue of standing up for the oppressed um, Muslims across the world, you should take that with a pinch of salt because look at Iran's two big allies at the moment. There's Russia and there's China. And, and Iran has supported Russia through its persecution of Muslims in Chechnya. And obviously Iran is, is friendly with China during the, against the backdrop of China's well-documented persecution of Muslims in, in Xinjiang. So I think we really need to understand Iran's what it wants today as survival of the regime, security within the within its borders. And then there's a lot around the edges, which we can probably get into around posturing and around the role that it wants to play against the, within the context of its huge rivalry with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, just on that point about the Iran-Iraq war, which some listeners may, may not be very familiar with, depending perhaps on your age, it was, of course, a, a war of an epic scale uh, in, in which uh, vast numbers of people 
were killed and and as you say um huge level of involvement in support of iraq against iran um briefly was that the support that iraq got when it was basically the belligerent was that really because people saw iran as this sort of dangerous I I islamist theocracy or was there something more fundamental there i think this 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 was at a time when if you know a lot of a lot of what 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 we have to talk about here is in the context of 1979. So Iran previously was, uh, prior to 79, was was America's one of America's sort of the big pillar of America's regional security architecture. The 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 relationship that, that the American that the White House had with the Shah was incredibly important as a, as a buyer of arms um, and of oil and and a sort of a seller of oil. So Iran is a as a an island or as Jimmy Carter called it an island of security or island of peace in a troubled region when Khomeini came in uh, that basically pivoted on its head um and there was huge obviously you had the hostage crisis where american hostages were taken for 444 days and the us embassy was sacked um so i think it's important to see it in that context and and uh, and it was kissinger who said that i hope that both sides can lose or it's a pity yeah. that both sides can't lose yes um so there was definitely a sense that this this you know that the americans Given the Baathist Soviet sympathies, ideally would like not to be uh, working with um, Saddam Hussein, but given their more recent and probably more acute enmity with the Islamic Republic, this was this was something that they wanted to get behind. And don't forget that the, the war, both you know Saddam's thinking behind the war was this is a new revolution. The country might not be particularly united. There's been massive purges of the Iranian armed forces after the fall of the Shah. That was the calculation Saddam made. He thought that, you know, I can attack a potentially ununited country at a at a sensitive time in its history when it's purged a lot of people within its armed forces. So there was that thinking that was playing into Saddam's decision. And there was to an element there was an Ameri that was part of the American thinking, thinking we don't know how long Khomeini is going to last. And particularly one of the reasons behind that was the even though now we look at the revolution of 1979 as this as establishing this great sort of monolithic theocracy it wasn't like that at the time the the revolution of 1979 was involved leftists it involved marxists it involved middle classes who potentially weren't going to be behind khomeini's velayat faqih this slightly revolutionary attitude to to a shia theocracy so I think that that is important to sort of view that in hindsight. At the time, people didn't think that this was going to last for, for however long it's lasted for. You mentioned Saudi Arabia, but of course, in a way, one of the most important developments for Iran in more recent years, 20 years ago, was the US-led invasion of Iraq. The outcome of that proved brilliant for Iran, didn't it? That I Iraq went from being this very hostile state ruled by a Sunni Arab dictator to being a very chaotic quasi-democracy in which many of the political parties and other significant uh, elements of the state are either closely allied to or under the direct influence of the Iranian government. So whilst it clearly wasn't, unless you're of a conspiratorial mindset, it clearly wasn't the, the US objective to, to give Iraq to Iran. But um, what, is it fair to sort of say that that has been the outcome of, of that transition? Absolutely. And and I think you can even go a couple of years back and, and, and look at Iran sort of prior to 9-11. There was a world where Iran was actually in in relatively sort of difficult straits domestically and uh, regionally. It had there was some fairly significant protests towards the end of the 1990s. Um, the economy wasn't in great condition. 
it was still a country that was relatively you know not long coming out of a situation of of war and still struggling with the legacy of that and it was still isolated to a degree on on the world stage and then it had adversaries in Afghanistan with the Taliban, with whom it nearly went to war after the death of a number of Iranian diplomats in Mazar Sharif. And then it had adversaries, obviously, in Iraq, Saddam Hussein, who was still there after having fought this incredibly bloody war with him, as you said. Um, so in a stroke, 9-11, the toppling of the Taliban, and don't forget that the toppling of the Taliban in Afghanistan, particularly in the West, in Herat, US uh, special forces worked closely with really senior IRGC commanders, um, Rahim Yohar Safavi, who's now a very, very senior IRGC commander in Iran, had close relationship in terms of sharing intel and operating with the Iranians to help drive out the Taliban from Afghanistan. So, and Iran, I think this is something which often gets overlooked. After 9-11, Iran was really the only countries really in the region that, that expressed real solidarity with America for what it had experienced on 9-11. So you had this, this experience where one, after 2001, the, the their enemies in Afghanistan had been basically flattened uh, and they were replaced by people with whom Iran had a much better relationship. And then, as you say, you have this uptick in their fortunes with the removal of Saddam Hussein. So I think in the context of the last however long, there is a there is a sort of a wave of Iranian fortunes. And within not only did the war in Iraq get rid of um its biggest enemy, Saddam Hussein. What it also did is it also put Iran's enemies' armies in Iraq where they could go and strike them. Yeah. But I think, apart from that, before that, George Bush's axis of evil speech, where he labelled um, Iran along with North Korea and Iraq threatening to, to, to world peace, that was a real kick in the what's-its for, for, for Khatemi at the time, who was interested in having a dialogue with the Americans. And this is very fabled policy of dialogue of civilizations, whereby Khatemi would try to reach out to people on the world stage, that the idea being that, that Iran could no longer continue indefinitely to be this sort of regional pariah, because partly, and this goes back to Iran's view of itself as the regional hegemon, not just in terms of military capabilities, but in terms of its intellectual prestige, in terms of its poetic and philosophical and scientific and um, cultural achievements over the years, yeah. it really does see itself as the as the regional hegemon. And that strain yeah. of nationalism, you know, it can cut both ways. And I think it's either cuts the way to say, actually, what are we doing being, being this sort of North Korea of the Middle East, isolated? Um, we should play a positive role in the region. So that strain of nationalism is really important to factor in when, we, when we're talking about Iran in the region. Yeah, and I, I remember that the, the axis of evil uh, moment, because as, as you say, that in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, uh, Iran was an ally, essentially, in, in the fight against uh, sort of al-Qaeda and Taliban extremism. Um, so we, you talk there about regional hegemon. And of course, there are some really important elements to this, as you mentioned Iran's huge significance in sort of cultural, uh, its, its cultural history, the, the, the Persian Empire stretching back millennia, um, but also its religious significance in the context of Shia Islam. And that forces us to think about another country that has uh, a view of itself as a regional hegemon, and that's Saudi Arabia. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the importance of Iran in Shia Islam? So I think Iran, Iran in in Shia Islam. Obviously, Iran is the largest Shia uh, Muslim country in the region, um, and I think Iran's Shia 
sort of Shia Islamic credentials, and obviously there's a huge uh, Shia population in in Baghdad, which 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 explains a, um, a lot of the relationships that have gone on over the years between those two countries, um, particularly Saddam Hussein thinking that that, that Iraq, uh, Iraq Shia were going to sort of rise up against him. Um, but I think the most interesting thing about Iran's Shia heritage is that Khomeini's sort of leadership philosophy is something called Velayat Faqih, which is the, the the guardianship of the jurist. And the reason the guardianship of the jurist, the guardianship of the jurist, what it does is it posits for the clergy, the, the Shia ulama, um, it posits for them an activist role in religion, where throughout uh, Persian history, throughout Iranian history, um, aside from one or two standout events, there was one in the 19th century where the Shia led a rebellion against the British concession to, to, to the tobacco industry. But these are largely isolated incidents. Over the course of the Shia ulama's history, modern history, they've largely played a quietest role in politics. So they don't really get involved in the day-to-day running of the state. Yeah. Now, Khomeini, in the lead-up to um, the, the revolution, flipped this on his head and came up with this idea, which was called Velayat Faqih and the Guardianship of the Jurist, and it, and it gave to him and to the clergy in general this role to take control, to take charge, to take a to take a sort of proactive role in politics. And and the thinking behind this was, look, religion, uh, sorry, politics under the Shah has become so polluted and it's become so corrupt and it's so become so materialistic. And again, that's that sort of looming fear of Western influence, what was called at the time Gharb Zadegi, which means sort of West Oxification. So this poisoning through these Western values of, of consumerism and materialism. And Khomeini thought that, that to purify politics, we need to inject it with religion. And and through a, a pretty radical rereading of, of Shia jurisprudence, advocated this very activist role for the clergy. Now, a lot of people around Khomeini at the time, the people who were more in tune with leftist ideas, sort of Foucault and Fanon and, and Sartre, and all of those ideas during the rounds basically said to Khomeini, look, you know, let, let's keep this stuff on the down low and let's start talking about the oppressed masses. Let's start talking about imperialism. Let's start talking about um, things that will have more carry with people on the ground in Iran. Um, so there was this sense that when Khomeini took power and even in, in when he was interviewed in Paris, when he had a little stint there before the revolution and, and journalists would ask him, what role do you envisage for yourself? You know, he'd been advised enough or he was wise enough to say, well, look, as soon as I've taken power, I'm going to go back to Khom and, and sort of, you know, spend time in the seminary reading about some mystical poetry and jurisprudence. Yeah. Um, so I think, and the so what of that is that throughout the Muslim world, the Shia world, in big ayatollahs, so the, the highest um, cleric in, in, in Shia Islam, ayatollahs in Iraq and ayatollahs in Pakistan and Shia ayatollahs in, in Afghanistan are not wholly supportive of Khomeini's doctrine of Velayat Faqih because they still see quietism as the driving principle for Shia Shiite involvement in politics. So I think that's something, you know, we think of, there's a tendency to think of Iran sort of by numbers as, as the bastion of, of Shia orthodoxy, but it's actually really important to say that what Khomeini came up with was in many respects an, an apostasy, and that's not my words, but that's the words of, of other Ayatollahs in, in Iraq who yeah. see Khomeini as someone who doesn't carry big legitimacy throughout throughout the um, the Muslim world. Yeah, that fascinating point. And if, I, if I'm not mistaken, the it, in the sort of historic context, the Ayatollahs of southern Iraq, which is a real sort of heartland of Shia Iraq, 
have have some claim to be to have a sort of superior authority even to some of the Iranian Ayatollahs. Definitely, definitely. And because they are closer to the heartlands of Najaf and Kabul, and Iran has a very important shrine in Mashhad um, in the east of the country. But but Najaf and Kabul, Kabul is, is, is the seat um, of Hussein's martyrdom at the Battle of Kabul. Um, and that, that is the sort of foundational myth of this sense of martyrdom, which which is incredibly important and is celebrated throughout, um, obviously celebrated every year at the Ashura Festival, where resistance to tyranny, um, standing up in the face of, you know, insurmountable odds. These are ideas that obviously are very current and they were used by the, the, the ulama, the Shia clergy in the lead up to the revolution to say, what we're doing with Ashura is we're st- we, we were standing up to the to the Umayyads, the sort of horrible people who were oppressing us. Now what we're doing, the, the now the Umayyads of today are the Pahlavis. The Pahlavis being the family name of the now deposed Shah of Iran. So the, so the clergy did use this trope of resistance to tyranny um, to get their message across through allegory during the during the dying days of the Pahlavi regime. And what's interesting now is that that message is obviously quite resonant in Iran today and the and the the sort of dastardly Umayyads are not the Pahlavis anymore but it's actually the Islamic Republic so that trope is a really important part of Iranian um, heritage Iranian psyche and and the Iranian sort of psychological dynamic and I think that's one of the reasons why Iran wants to see itself as standing up for the oppressed masses for example in Palestine because that fits with their own Shiite narrative of standing up in the face of oppression. Yeah. And of course, um, your mention there of Palestine also makes me think of the importance of resistance in Lebanon. And whilst Iran was fighting what was really quite a probably an existential war against Iraq, it also began its involvement with uh, Lebanese Hezbollah. Um, Could you say a bit about why that happened and how that happened? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I mean, this, this Lebanese, Lebanese Hezbollah and the Iranian relationship obviously, obviously goes back to, to the wars of the 1980s. Um, and this is an example of Iran looking to both get a bit of prestige on the global stage by having an influence on regional conflicts, but also the beginnings of a 
a, a development of the proxies throughout the region, the fruits of which we see today, whereby, you know, and, it, and, and don't forget Iran, obviously, we need to remember this is a revolutionary state and part of revolutionary states, whether it's the Russian Revolution or the Islamic Republic, there is a sense of exporting the revolution that is really important to the DNA. And, and what better to export the revolution than to have found this sort of sheer militia um, in, in, you know, in, in Iran's near abroad to to help further those aims. So Iran's relationship with Hezbollah goes back to, to that desire to have strategic reach into the region and also as part of its long-running conflict against America. And, and a lot of the, the early targets of, of Hezbollah were actually Americans. Um, so I think that's that's incredibly important to remember. And the, the Iran of then and the Iran of now, even though the America of then and the America of now in foreign policy terms has undergone certain shifts due to events and um, change of, of administrations, you've still got very similar people in positions of authority or in or in institutions of authority as you had um, during those days for Iran. So there's a consistency of policy that, that Iran has had, a very pragmatic, very rational, very ruthless policy that Iran has had throughout the region of developing, funding, directing um, and deploying these proxies. And I think when we think about Hezbollah now, this is this plausible deniability that Iran has through its proxies is is incredible because it gives them ability to strike at its adversaries in the region. But there is also a vulnerability there because they also, just as they can strike people in the region, they can also be struck in the region. And one of the, the fears that people talked about um, in the context of the war at the moment in Gaza is that should Iran overreach, there is a danger that it's, it's sort of key tool of regional you know, policy might be at risk of blowback from its own actions, which again would weaken its reach into the region. So I think when we talk, it's we have to be careful here to to remind ourselves that it, this is a balance. This is a, a, a tight road that Iran has to walk, because if you deploy these proxies too much, there is a risk that, that they get whacked and that removes an arm of regional policy. I mean, that's simplistic, but I think that's important to note. Yeah, indeed. So talking about that regional policy, uh, let's talk about Saudi Arabia. Um, has Iran been seen as a threat in Riyadh ever since the Islamic Revolution? Or, or is this something that, that, that has developed as Iran developed those, those relationships with its proxies around the region? The I think the the Iran Saudi relationship going back to 1979 when you had um, the Islamic Revolution and the I suppose at the time there were other the the, the occupation of of, of um, Mecca um, the invasion of Afghanistan you had these sort of three events in 1979 um, against the backdrop of a sort of continually turbulent Israel Palestine issue um, where Iran and Saudi Arabia the, the, these two big um, bastions of Sunni and Shiism, respectively, there was a war there in in terms of a war for influence. So the Iranians, both the Iranians and the um, Saudis, were pumping out rhetoric that would help further their own cause. So, for example, in Yemen, Zaidi Shia, uh, a lot of the Saudi influence there was was through sort of Wahhabi doctrine to yeah. try and pick away at the edges of, of that sort of Shia with a small S because there's a there's a sort of, obviously, the Zaydis aren't, aren't like the 12 Shias like Iran is, and they're probably closer to, to, to what we might look as Sunni Islam. But that is an example of Saudi Arabia using its money 
to educate, to, you might say, to indoctrinate. Um, and you had this sort of war of influence throughout the region in terms of who can claim to speak for Islam. And I think so much of this is around who controls the Arab street, who can claim to speak for the Arab street. Um, and and then I think it, the, the theatre in which that erupted probably recently, and you'd have had experience of this, is between Sunni and Shia in Iraq, um, yeah. where you had Saudis funding um, Sunni and you had um, Iranians funding Shia. And I think another theatre of that was, Sun- was um, Syria, where Iran was obviously on the side of, of, of Bashar al-Assad in trying to push back against ISIS. And there was a lot of, I suppose, talk around the degree to which um, Saudi Arabia funds and has funded uh, Sunni groups. But I think the difference now is that you've got someone in Riyadh who is not interested in that. I think I think it's important to note that MBS wants his economy to do well. well um, he wants society to be cohesive, as, as according to what he sees as cohesive is, and he wants stability. So he's he's much more interested in having relations with Iran. He's much more interested in having uh, making Saudi into a, into a regional sort of economic powerhouse, and he's much less interested in continuing to fight this proxy war simply because he just doesn't see the value of it. Um, so I think that's a you know and I. Even though the 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 region, particularly with regards to Iran and Saudi, is in huge turmoil, the degree to which some of these powers are coming together to talk is one of the few bright spots. So Egypt and Iran are having you know potential talks towards reconciliation after a very storied history, and Saudi and Iran are making tentative steps towards um, some kind of a rapprochement, which which would benefit Saudi. I think the advantage that Saudi Arabia has got is that Saudi. Saudi Arabia is a country that can pivot between East and West. So it can join BRICS, but it can also have a, a security pact with the US. It can have a relationship with Iran, but it can also have a really strong relationship with America. Um, whereas Iran is is because of the choices it's made over the, you know, since 1979 and the choices it continues to make, both from a kind of ideological perspective and a pragmatic perspective, Iran is very, very, very much pretty much in in the camp that, that, that we would imagine and they would be. So the sort of the Venezuelas, the Russias, the China, it's very, it would be very difficult ideologically for Iran to straddle that divide and have some kind of grand bargain where it where it comes back in from the coal yeah. from a Western perspective. So that, that's a big advantage that Saudi has over Iran. Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly what, what you've described there as, as the sort of rapprochement that have come out of the crisis is, is one of the most fascinating and most unexpected elements of it in in the sense that in the immediate aftermath of um, the uh, October the 7th massacre, there was talk. And I even heard it from people who are, uh, uh, you know, close to the Saudi state that, that, that the Saudis would have to take some kind of reaction against Iran. But in fact, the absolute contrary occurred. Um, but that, then that, that sort of leads us to, uh, a, a question which, which we hear quite a lot at the moment about this idea of a grand bargain, which is, I think, sometimes is a sort of slightly over-optimistic sort of diplomatic framing. But is is there is there a possible outcome from uh, what is currently a very muddled up and 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 you know chaotic situation, where Saudi and Iran um, bury their their differences? where Egypt and Iran do the same and where clearly Iran and Israel aren't about to sort of embrace one another. But if if they if they see that there's this sort of triangulation going on with Saudi and the Egyptians, then it just reduces that tension as well. 
Yeah, and, and prior to October the 7th, there was a sense that with US sort of withdrawing from the region and Saudi playing a bigger role, the role that Saudi was going to play was not going to be a boots on the ground one. It was going to be a network of relationships um, way of controlling the situation or, or at least, you know, getting it to, getting its um, or achieving its aims regionally. But the, the, the challenge to a grand bargain is, is that the, the jury is still out on what role America wants to play in the region. And, and there is the looming um, prospect of a, of a Trump administration, which which would which would sort of land America foursquare behind Israel and would obviously land America foursquare against Iran. And I don't know that Saudi has got enough clout in the region to turn around to a Trump um, administration and say, you know, actually, we, we would like to solve this diplomatically as opposed to this kind of sort of, you know, the type of rhetoric that we saw from Trump regarding Israel and the type of rhetoric that we saw from Trump and his his White House regarding Iran. So all things being equal, and, and this is a very stupid thing to say, but absenting October the 7th, I think there was every possibility that Iran was becoming more isolated in the region, or at least Iran's brand of sort of sectarian troublemaking in the region was just becoming slightly obsolete. And and the so what of that would have been that they could have said, actually, why don't we just become part of a regional uh, network of di- diplomatic relationships that serves everyone's interests, as opposed to continue to fight um, the, the proxy wars that we are in the region. Um, yeah. If the US, I think that the the if the US is more hawkish on Iran and if the US continues to strike at Iranian proxies, what that's doing is that's telling the Iranian paranoia machine, you still need to be wary of us. Therefore, you still need to pursue your regional interests by leveraging your proxies, striking American interests. So a lot depends on how America will approach the idea of a grand bargain. And and I think that when we talk a lot of, a lot that's been going on with the grand bargain, one of the key players in this, and actually one of the key advocates of a grand bargain has been China. Yeah. And the challenge there is that, you know, for China to play a big role on the world stage, a positive role, which involved building peace and and sort of ending a conflict in the Middle East, that would sort of hit the buffers of Trump's own ego. Um, and I don't think that he would let that fly, not least because of his relationship with Netanyahu, but also because the web that he, the relationships that he has means that that's, that would just be too complicated for him to take on almost from a sort of, you know, psychological perspective as anything else. Yeah. Because the interesting thing um, about Iran's behaviour in recent months is arguably that it has been de-escalatory rather than escalatory. And and particularly you've seen this uh, both in, in the immediate aftermath of October the 7th with Iran distancing itself to some extent from what Hamas had done, but also much more recently with, with the killing of three US servicemen, uh, Iran once again sort of clarifying that whilst there had been one of its proxies uh, acting with 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 um, you know equipment that no doubt had been supplied to it by Iran that it definitely wasn't doing so on their orders, um, and so th- that sort of takes us to the question of what are these proxies really for? Because Iran seems to want uh, not to get dragged into a conflict with the USA. You know that it is not run by crazy people who want the end of the world. You know some people have got that sort of concept mm-hmm. of Iran. Um, so what what is it they do want in in the context of their relationship with America? Yeah, that, I mean that's 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 a great question because because the the there is a sense of confusion. The Iraqi militia um, said that we actually we we don't want a war with or, or we want to stop striking Americans um, in the country because we want to we don't want to embarrass the regime in Baghdad anymore. 
um, and you have Iran pursuing this policy of modulated deterrence through its proxies, I, I think it's a bit like some of these groups that were created by Pakistan uh, in the Afghan-Soviet war and a de- to a degree the Americans. You create these groups for very, for very sort of clear purposes, but then when that purpose is gone, you slightly don't know what to do with them. Um, and I think that that is true to a degree with some of particularly the Iraq and, and, and Syrian proxies that were created for a very specific purpose to go after, go after ISIS or to go after Western interests. Um, you know, the, the ones in um, in Syria the, to, to protect the holy shrines in Syria, the Zainab Yun and the Fatah Mayuns. You know, the, these were crafted at a time when Iran felt existentially threatened by ISIS. Yeah. Um, so I think in some ways it, it's a sort of what do we do with this once the once the utility has ended? Um, and that's a question that, that, that Iran has to answer. And, and again, I, I, I go back to my previous point that this is a this is a fine balance that Iran has to strike because the more the the region sort of spills into conflict and the more it fans the flames of the conflict in Gaza, what what history tells us that leads to is sectarian conflict. And one of the things that these groups were were created to sort of solve were the consequences of a sectarian conflict in the region where Iran was incredibly threatened. And Iran did feel extensively, sort of severely threatened by ISIS. Um, and it did, going back, it did feel severely threatened by the Taliban. So there's a danger that if Iran pushes things too far and there's broader conflict in the region that turns sectarian, it will actually be a loser, not a winner, as it looks like it is potentially at the moment. So understanding their roles, I think they're all specific to the groups. Um, and for example, you know the, the 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 Houthis, they have their own set of domestic goals. They have their own set of regional goals that are specific to their own context, but but that make the relationship between them and the, the Iran and the Houthis quite complicated and difficult to control. Yeah. Um, finally, we've we've talked a lot about this this regional posture, but as you mentioned from the outset. Uh, Iran's leadership is very focused on uh, the situation inside Iran. Not long ago, there were um, protests in Iran at such a scale that some people were questioning the survivability of the regime. And and of course, you also have a situation where the supreme leader, who is Ayatollah Khamenei, who is not the same person as the president, uh, is is sort of coming towards the end of their 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 likely um, time on this earth, and and there are questions around succession. So, mm-hmm. uh, what 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 can we say about one the durability of this system, but also uh, how it navigates that that succession to a new generation? I think that's I mean that is the key. I think that's one of the key issues at the moment. Khamenei is is however old he is, um, and he has cancers as as we know. The interesting thing about the succession issue is that Khamenei doesn't talk about the succession issue. And I think he is, as he's learned from history with the way he's treated protesters, you know, Khamenei saw and Khomeini saw the way the Shah treated protesters. There was an there was an attempt to sort of leave the country before things got too bad, or the Shah left the country before things got too bad to forestall any kind of internal civil war. Um and Khamenei and Khamenei have basically said, look, we're not doing that. We are absolutely cracking down because if you give an inch to the protesters, you will give a mile and then you will fall. Um, Khamenei is obsessed with the, with the colour revolutions. So those, those sort of wave of revolutions that, that swept across Eastern Europe. And what he sees in them is not an indigenous striving for democracy or pluralism or transparency. 
the, he sees in them the sort of dastardly influence of a foreign hand. And, and what that means is that there's actually no real attempt on behalf of particularly the Supreme Leader's Office to understand why are people protesting and therefore what can we do to address those concerns. So you have someone who is pretty intransigent in his belief about how protest should be dealt with, i.e. it should be cracked down severely. But you also have someone who is stuck between two people about who will be the who will succeed him. So there's Mojtaba Khamenei, his, his second son, and there's Ibrahimi Raisi, who's currently the president. And there are lots of arguments for both of them. Um, I think for, for Mojtaba Khamenei to become supreme leader, that both ensures Khamenei's legacy, but also that would be anathema to the Shia clergy for whom dynastic lineage is limited only to the 12 imams, imams. And for a lot of people within revolutionary and who've sort of fought for the revolution, you know, they fought a revolution so that they wouldn't have a dynastic succession of power. So if Mojtaba is made is made supreme leader, that will cause chaos, not just on the potentially on the street amongst people who support the Islamic Republic, but also within the seminaries, you know, um, amongst whom Khamenei relies or on whom Khamenei relies for support. I think in terms of internal security, my sense is that there's, there's a lot of people who will say, I will argue it either way. You know, there's people who will say, look, the Islamic Republic is bound to fall under the weight of its own contradictions. And there's this kind of zombified middle class who who can't buy anything. They can't get their children married. They can't go to university. They can't get a good job because of the sort of um, nepotism that, that, that exists within government institutions. And then I think you've got people who say, look, you know, the, the MOIS, who is the internal intelligence people and the IGC and the Bersiege, they are not frightened at all by the protests. The protests look bad, but they didn't really ruffle the surface. They didn't get out of bed to deal with this because the Bersiege, the sort of volunteer force, the volunteer paramilitary force could deal with it. So there's in, in the narrative, there's there's two positions which say one is that this is about to fall tomorrow and the other one is that um, the the Islamic Republic is is here to stay. My sense is is that I, I obviously somewhere in between of the, in between those I can see the contradictions inherent in the Islamic Republic, and I can see how at some point they will become too much to bear. I can also see that the regime is incredibly powerful and is in, and is actually incredibly stable. Um, and if you but I think if you look at Russia before it fell, before communism fell, or the Soviet Union fell you would have had a lot of sort of Soviet experts saying, look, Soviet Russia is here to stay. You know, it's got KGB a control of everything. It's got a very big army. Yes, there's protests. Yes, there's hunger. Yes, there's, you know, high, high prices and, and, and high unemployment. But these guys have got this on lockdown and there's, there's nothing to see here. And then when it fell, I think you had a lot of people looking back saying, oh, how did we miss that? So I, my sense is that it's the point at which Iraq, the Islamic Republic does fall, if it does, that will that will be the thinking that people will look back and say, well, look, why did we spot all these contradictions? Well, that, that is a perfect place to, to end this particular discussion. And um, whether or not the, the, the next few months will uh, add further information to help us answer those longer questions, only time will tell. But in the meantime, Charlie, thank you very much for joining me. Arthur, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this edition of Behind the Lines. It was presented and produced by me, Arthur Snell.